Hey everybody, welcome back to the Liberty on Fire podcast, and this is Libertarian Tony, finally bringing you the uh, Contra Carlson episode that I wanted to uh, start for you guys. So I guess I have a plan going forward, uh, sort of a new segment for the podcast is that although I like most of the things that Tucker says most of the time, Every once in a while, he gets something wrong, especially on economics. So I want to start this Contra Carlson segment. And I do try to listen to Tucker every day. He's part of one of my, uh, I guess, go-to sources for things happening in the news. I don't necessarily agree with him on everything. And those points where I disagree, I want to bring to the listeners. Okay, so recently... Uh, Tucker has mentioned several things that I have an issue with. Broad-based, let's just talk about some of these topics real quick. One of them was with uh, Twitter and, I guess, YouTube or Facebook on how they're kind of censoring speech. Uh, There's his economics on uh, tariffs and protectionism. And then he made some comments recently on uh, the credit card interest rate limits. Okay, so that first topic is pretty easy to talk about. So this is in regards to uh, Facebook being caught and I think Twitter, probably Pinterest at this point, and maybe some of the other social media platforms that are censoring speech that they don't like. Well, it just so happens that most of these institutions are highly progressive and uh, they tend to censor speech of conservatives. And so the appropriate, I think, libertarian response to this is, well, they are private companies and they can do what they want. And although that is a libertarian response, that's probably not all of it. Uh, I think libertarians in general should acknowledge that, yeah, this does kind of suck. And we do need another company or another platform uh, to come along and provide some market competition. One major problem here with that argument is that government does grant these social media platforms uh, basically it's a monopoly and that's pretty much the only way you can have a monopoly nowadays is when uh, you get some kind of special favor from government and the huge favor or actually one of the huge favors is that these companies are protected by government from being sued They argue that they are just a platform for speech and that as a platform are not responsible for what people post. So the problem is that if you are a platform and want to say that you aren't responsible for what people post, then why are you censoring people? If you want to get government protection to be a platform for free speech, then you shouldn't be censoring anybody. You should be following the constitutional restriction on government to abridge free speech, right? So if if government is basically granting you a special protection to promote and publish free speech, then you go out and censor people, then you should lose that government protection of freedom from lawsuits. And that's just one of the examples of the problems that happen when government gets into bed with these corporations and grant them special favors so that they can kind of become this uh, monopoly or protected 
uh, group of companies or this protected industry. And here's a, an issue. Tucker's response is to this, I guess, social media problem is that he thinks government, the very same government who provides these monopolies and gets in bed with uh, corporations in exchange for lobbying money, he wants to put them in charge of the scrutiny over the social media space. Now, does that really make any sense? I mean, just remember from last year when Zuckerberg was called in front of uh, Congress to testify, and Zuckerberg specifically said that he would love to help write the regulations for the social media industry. Well, duh, of course, he would want to be in charge of, you know, writing the regulations that would completely favor his company at the expense of his competitors. So, yeah, I think Tucker's heart is in the right place, but the prescription that he would want to fix social media coming from government is just ass backwards. You really don't want government coming in and telling companies what they can and cannot publish and who they can and cannot censor. That's not in the purview of the general government to be involved in. The general government should have no say whatsoever over speech in any shape or form. Okay, so then Tucker's response now would be, well, what are conservatives and you know, right-wing people supposed to do? Just sit there and take it? We're just supposed to wait around for a uh, platform to start up that won't censor our speech? Well, yeah, that's part of it. And, you know, to finish answering that point, um, everybody knows the, uh, the famous worldwide speaker, Jordan Peterson. Well, he just announced that he is in, uh, starting a new social media company called ThinkSpot, which is going to be a free speech platform that promises to provide users with all the best features of social media, but without the censorship. So, yeah, I guess to answer Tucker's question, yeah, it has sucked for so long that these left-wing social media companies have gotten away with what they've gotten away with for so long. And eventually, the market was going to answer the question. Someone needed to. Jordan Peterson, and it looks like I think he's involved with uh, Dave Rubin from the Rubin Report. They're getting together, and this is obviously not going to be cheap for them to do, but they probably have some financial backers that are willing to put this out there so that everybody has a right to say what they want to say and not be censored for their points of view. Okay, so one of Tucker's other points that he made that I didn't agree with recently was talking about the, I guess, the economics of Elizabeth Warren and that she said something about subsidizing or that America subsidizes R&D companies uh, but doesn't reap the rewards of this subsidization that, and that America sends these jobs overseas just to make a buck. Well, this is kind of a, a retarded way of looking at things, I think. So let's say that R&D is done here in the U.S. And then when a company makes a product from that R&D, somehow we lost out. Well, this is totally untrue. So we were able to get that product much more cheaply because it was produced overseas. If it were like forcibly produced here in the U.S., either maybe through high tariffs or something, then it would cost a ton more. And much less product would be sold. 
And those products that the consumers actually want would either be more expensive or non-existent. Now, you don't get wealthier by paying more for things. Your, your standard of living goes up when prices go down and you're paying less for things. This is why everybody likes things when they go on sale. So Tucker believes in some sort of, uh, I guess, economic nationalism or economic socialism, which are basically similar and kind of different. I guess it depends on how you define the terms or how the terms are applied because they really aren't interchangeable and some people use them differently. Anyway, most of our highly educated politicians would have no idea between the distinction or have any basic understanding of free market economics to begin with. So economic nationalism, let's say, is when a, a government will just take control over a certain industry, kind of like what Venezuela did with their oil industry. Economic socialism is more along the lines where the people or the workers have ownership over the means of production. And then you can get into another distinction, maybe uh, economic fascism, where through regulation or just direct threats or implied threats, the government's basically telling companies what they can and cannot do. In general, I guess if Tucker and people or politicians are worried about sending jobs overseas, well, why don't they call for the right policies and prescriptions to make it easier for companies to hire in the USA? Why not go out and just significantly cut the number of regulations, you know, cut the minimum wage, cut taxes on corporations? Why don't they get rid of all the, you know, protective status issues of uh, people like based on gender and race and handicap or sexual orientation? Now, it seems a little counterintuitive, right? If, if you make it easier for companies to fire someone, you're also making it much easier for companies to hire people, right? Because that's, that's one of the biggest risks to a company is when they hire somebody new, right? So you have all these laws or labor laws that protect you based on race, gender, sexual orientation, and things like that. And so a company has to take that into account when they're hiring a minority or they're hiring a gay person or they're hiring, you know, someone that's transgender because then they're stuck with that person because if they try to fire someone that they don't think is living up to their role that they should be, you know, someone that's just a poor worker or shows up late or whatnot, they can easily get sued because of this protected status. So the incentive is for companies just to not hire those types of people. So there was a study done, uh, I guess, back in the day, John Stossel has mentioned this before, that handicapped people in the workplace were more gainfully employed than they were after laws were passed to kind of protect them. And that makes sense. It makes sense for a company that, you know, maybe a handicapped person can't function at a full capacity in some role that a person without the handicap could perform. And so maybe they were hired to do a certain job that, you know, fit the role uh, for their level of skill. But when you put a law in place that protects that person and says that we're going to make it really easy to sue the company if you try to fire this person, well, then the company takes on a significant risk just hiring that person in the first place, right? Makes sense. Okay, now please don't kill me for this long-winded math example. But I, I think if you follow through, you'll, you'll see my point 
and it'll make it really easy to understand. Okay, so, all right, Tucker um, had this comment about outsourcing jobs, and he thought it was a bad idea to take advantage of these lower labor costs, you know, some or in some overseas uh, country, uh, just to make the shareholders a few extra bucks. So let me explain this. And let me tell you why this is actually a good thing and talk about basic economics a little bit. So unless you have a uh, government-guaranteed monopoly, you basically make a lot of money by providing a good or service that people actually want. And the way to get really wealthy is to scale your business to a huge consumer base. So let's say you have a phone that you're selling. Let's call it the uh, Tony phone. So now it's a new product, and it's hot on the market. And so maybe the first year, uh, because production costs are high, uh, you have to charge $1,000 for the phone. And that year, you're only able to sell 1,000 phones. So 1,000 times 1,000, that's a million bucks. Each phone, let's say, costs 800 bucks to make, right? So 800 times 1,000, $800,000. So on 1,000 phones... Your profit is $200,000. Okay, so next year, let's say you find a way to make the phone cheaper for, let's say, I don't know, 400 bucks. And now you're able to lower your prices and you decide to sell the phone for 500 bucks. So now since so many more people can afford to buy a $500 phone as opposed to a $1,000 phone, you sell 10,000 phones instead of 1,000 phones. Okay, so if we do the math, you got 10,000 phones at 500 each. So this is $5 million. Remember, it costs 400 uh, to make the phone now times 10,000. That's 4 million. Now your profits are 5 million minus 4 million. That's a million bucks. So when the phone was $1,000, you only pocketed 200,000. And now by lowering your price and selling to more people, you pocket a million. So stay with me now. Next, you decide to move production overseas to China or Mexico or someplace basically that has really cheap labor. Now you can make this phone for 100 bucks. And then since you can produce this phone so cheaply, let's say you set the price of the phone at $200. Well, again, since you lowered the price to 200 bucks, Tons and tons of more people can afford to buy it. And you end up selling, in this case, let's say, at $200, you sell a million phones. So that comes to $200 times a million phones, that's $200 million. And it only costs you $100 times a million phones to make. That's $100 million. So now your net profit is $100 million. So you see, each time the price is lowered to produce the phone, you could sell more phones to a vastly larger number of people, thereby making a ton more money doing so. So let's get back to, you know, Tush Tucker's problem. So moving overseas to cut labor costs. Well, I think he's assuming that you would never lower your prices, and that really doesn't make any sense economically, right? Of course, you want to lower your prices in order to attract more consumers, right? That's how you get rich. But let, let's do the math uh, his way, so just to prove it. 
So remember, we went back to our original example in the beginning. We had a thousand phones, sold at a thousand dollars each, and eight hundred dollars each to make. And so your net profit originally was two hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so now under Tucker's economics, you move your operations to China, you make the phone for a hundred bucks, but you still sell it for a thousand. Now that's still a pretty spendy phone, right? Thousand bucks. So a lot of people aren't going to want to pay a thousand bucks for a phone, so you're only going to sell another thousand phones. So here, if you do the math, a thousand times a thousand again is a million, and a thousand times a hundred to produce the phone is a hundred thousand. So your net profit is what? It's, it's going to be a million minus a hundred thousand, that's nine hundred thousand dollars in profit. So yes. You did make more in profit. You went from 200000 to 900000 However, if you remember my example, when you lowered the cost of the phone to 200 bucks, your net profit was $100 million. That's 111 times more profit than if you use, you know, Tuckernomics or Tucker Economics. So Tucker never mentioned the huge benefit to consumers by being able to get things cheaply. He's only talking about it, I guess, from the business perspective and, you know, the shareholders. Now, if you can buy a phone for 200 bucks instead of 1000 now you have $800 more left over to spend on other things. You can have your Tony phone plus 800 bucks, whereas before you only had the Tony phone and you were out 1000 bucks. Now, think of all the other things you can buy with that 800 bucks. Obviously, you have a phone... You have the money left over to buy other things, so your standard of living goes up. Now let's talk about jobs. Now let's say a U.S. factory has 100 employees making this Tony phone. By shifting production overseas, yes, this small group of 100 employees would lose their job. But again, economically, millions of other people now being able to buy a cheaper phone are going to get helped out. So yes, while this one small group of 100 people on the surface seem to be harmed, right? You know, they lost their jobs, but millions more are helped by being able to buy a cheaper phone. And additionally, all the leftover money they have for being able to buy a cheaper phone helps them spend, you know, money on other things. This extra spending will help all the businesses that they decide to shop at, which ends up creating more jobs. Okay, so now I want to address that whole shareholder issue, which is, I, I kind of thought was a really stupid point. So you, you have this Tony phone uh, or a Tony phone company that makes the Tony phone, and let's say it's a you know, publicly traded company and people own shares in it uh, or you know, shares of stock in this company. Well, if the company increases their profits considerably by moving production overseas, this obviously is going to increase their share price. And who does this help? Of course, it helps the people who work for the company and the people who own the company. But who owns the company? The shareholders, right? Not just the CEO. The CEO is going to get a bonus if the share price goes up, right? Or the earnings per share go up. But the shareholders get a bonus too. Their share, their share price goes up. So yeah, Tucker is, is right on this, that the shareholders will make a profit. But who are the shareholders? Our shareholders are millions and millions of people across the world and across the United States, right? Everybody, or most people, have some sort of retirement account. 
or someone just looking to make a an investment and you know they could even use the extra 800 bucks they they had left over from buying that cheap tony phone to buy stock in the company so just think of all the mutual funds out there all the retirement plans and individual vet investors that could be helped by a company's share price increasing so yeah i mean tucker really misses a lot of things with his analysis and with, with his example and and his you know tuckernomics which i call it is is way off so now with my explanation i mean you can see how millions and millions of people could be helped potentially either either by being able to buy a cheap phone and having a lot of money left over to spend on other things or all, all the extra money being uh, spent on other things in the economy and that boosts jobs and those businesses or by having the share price in a company that's doing well go up so Alternatively, you know, Tucker's way, by forcing that company to stay in the USA, yeah, maybe you're saving a tiny number of jobs, but their Tony phones will be real expensive. And when, you know, the Joey phone company comes along and decides to move overseas and lower its prices, well, maybe the Tony phone company doesn't do so well because it didn't outsource and the Tony phone company goes out of business. And now those hundred jobs that Tucker wanted to protect go away anyway. Okay, so you can basically apply this same logic to any industry. So steel and timber, you know, when the politicians rant about saving American steel jobs with tariffs on foreign steel, what they aren't telling you is that, let's say, you know, there's like a thousand jobs in the USA steel industry, and I have no idea what the actual number is, but let's say it's a thousand jobs. Uh, that they saved by, you know, applying these high tariffs to foreign steel, that results in a substantially higher cost of steel that is used in making millions of products across the country and across the world. So basically, every product made with steel, their prices have to go up. And this hurts potentially hundreds of millions of people just to save those thousand jobs. Think about it. Okay, so... Another thing that Tucker mentioned um, during one of his shows is he kind of took a pot shot at uh, libertarians and talking about how the, you know, the problem with the Republican Party is that their leadership has very libertarian leanings, something like that. I mean, is he, is he really crazy? I mean, I would love if the Republican Party had libertarian leanings. I mean, the only people that I kind of think have some sort of libertarian leaning would be, you know, Rand Paul, Justin Amash, Thomas Massey. I would say at this point with Ron Paul out of Congress, libertarians have little to no influence at all in politics at the moment. And I really wish it was otherwise. I mean, it's really kind of comical, right? I mean, he Tucker mentioned by name Austrian economics and said that because our Republican politicians don't want to violate some principle of Austrian economics that they, they can't help protect jobs. And this is obviously really incoherent. Uh, I did your, the math example to explain why. And it's just so wrong. I mean, no Republican ever mentioned Austrian economics except for Ron Paul. And that's it. No politicians will even mention Austrian economics now. They hardly ever mention some like free market economics. So if, if Austrian economics or free market economics was so popular, then 
you know, why didn't Ron Paul win when he ran for president twice? All right, that's because Republicans don't follow free market economics. Tucker also said that Republicans talk about cutting entitlements when they never actually do and they never will. I mean, this just doesn't happen. So yeah, I, I kind of found his comments just really off base on some of these things. Okay, so the last, uh, I guess, uh, Tuckerism that I wanted to call out was he commented and uh, well, actually praised, you know, Bernie Sanders and uh, AOC about the uh, credit card law or anti-credit card law that they wanted to uh, put forth, right? So, you have Bernie Sanders and AOC unveiled this sweeping new legislation to impose some sort of federal cap of 15% on credit card interest rates. Now, again, on the surface, this sounds like it's a good thing. It sounds like Tucker has a heart and just wants poor people to be able to get credit at a lower interest rate. And again, this, this is just a bad idea that never seems to go away. This has been called for before and has never really worked, but there's no shortage of free stuff that Bernie Sanders or AOC want to give you in order to get their vote. Okay, so having an interest rate ceiling, uh, uh, putting a price control on an interest rate just causes shortages. This type of program, like almost all government programs, always hurt the people that they want to try to help. So uh, just applying a, a cap on interest rates doesn't really improve anybody's credit rating. I mean, passing this law doesn't make you a better borrower, right? I mean, that makes sense. So how can setting a rate at a low enough level all of a sudden decrease the risk to the credit company for those borrowers, right? Think about it. The reason rates are so high for some borrowers is because you are really poor credit risk. You know, maybe you haven't paid your bills on time, or maybe you just decided not to pay your bills at all, and that's why your credit rating sucks. Or maybe this is your, you know, first time applying for a credit card and you have no credit history whatsoever. You know, let's say you're a student. So they charge you, they charge you a high interest rate. Well, then over time, you pay your bills on time and you show that you can be a good borrower. Well, then your credit score goes up and you're able to get credit and loans at a much lower interest rate. I mean, that's how this works. So these credit companies now faced with this interest rate cap are probably going to do one of two things. And I think they're going to probably err on the side of just not giving credit to people who have bad credit scores. So whereas before, you know, if they needed the money and they could get the money, but they'd have to pay a high interest rate, now they'll be just completely unable to get the money in a legal way. And you'll cause a, a black market to, to form, right? Loan sharking, I mean, that was a huge deal however many years ago with the mafia. I think uh, the mafia probably still makes a considerable amount of money by loan sharking. I mean, is it better to pay a high interest rate or to have somebody named Joey come over to your house and break your legs if you're late on a payment? Okay, so the other alternative might be, well, let's say you're kind of close, uh, credit risk. You know, maybe you're not worth the 15%, but you know, you're more of like, okay, your, your risk for borrowing is in the 16 to 20% range. 
So if the, the companies do lend you credit, in order to make up for that risk they can't, and they can't charge the higher interest rate, they're probably going to charge everybody else with those credit cards a higher interest rate. So whereas you know, the person who is paying their bills on time and doing the right thing, doesn't miss any payments and has a long good, good credit history, and their interest rates over time, they were able to get that down to like five or eight percent or something. Well, now their interest rate's going to go up to who knows, maybe twelve or thirteen percent, because of the extra risk that this credit company has to take on, because government is causing another market distortion. So, okay, there was a study where some states that already have usury ceilings, that in these states they have higher costs of goods. So, for example. A car dealer in states that can't charge a market interest rate, all they do is they just jack up the prices of their cars. So in the end, those firms that are lending money for buying cars are going to make the same amount anyway. Also, as part of that study I found was that there are an uh, increased number of pawn shops in those states with those usury ceilings. So is it better to be able to have a credit card with a high interest rate or to go to a pawn shop and maybe sell a family heirloom uh, that you maybe can hopefully buy back at a higher price you know when you get the money I would rather have a higher interest rate credit card and try to pay that off every month so that I could work on raising my credit score wouldn't you instead of selling something in a pawn shop doesn't do anything for your credit history Okay, so I have another similar example for a uh, government-caused market distortion. You have the uh, Credit Card Act of 2009 and, and Dodd-Frank and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which basically did a lot of things, but what, one of the things they did is put price controls on debit card fees, right? And so a huge amount of regulation involved here. One of the negative impacts was a, a huge decrease in the number of free checking accounts. So free checking accounts, who does that hurt? That hurts poor people who can't have or who don't have a lot of money in the bank at one time, right? Normally with a free checking account, you have to have like a $500 minimum or a $1,000 minimum month to month in order to avoid paying the fee. So I just wanted to throw that in there as another example of where you get some sort of government intervention that causes a market distortion, and then that market distortion hurts the people that the politicians wanted to help. Okay, guys, I'm sorry this was such a long podcast, and I'm going to try to be more on top of things with Tucker going forward. And again, I, I do, I have to say, I do really like Tucker Carlson, and I, I like um, a lot of his views on, you know, when he talks about culture and things going on with, uh, the, you know, the whole Russia hoax collusion thing. And I mean, Tucker was one of the earliest people that were spot on about it being a hoax. And obviously it was. And but not I mean, there was nobody in most of the corporate media who was calling it a hoax other than some of the people on Fox and maybe some people in uh, the alternative media. But anyway, Tucker Carlson's great on that. He's great on uh, foreign policy. But when he does get things wrong, I'm going to call him out. And I'm hoping over time, Tucker starts listening to the podcast and, you know, fixes his economics. Maybe I'll send him a, a book on economics or something. Well, that will do it for today. 
Thank you all for listening to the Liberty on Fire podcast. Please do me two favors. Number one is to share the show. Remember that we want to continue to advance the message of individual liberty, and sharing and growing the show is one of the best ways to do that. The second favor is to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. A five-star rating is much appreciated. Also, please check out our website, libertyonfire.org. Thank you very much. And until next time, let's keep those fires of liberty burning bright. 